He's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. The killer robots are here, and they're not going away. And we've all seen footage of the cute robot dogs stumbling around with weapons strapped to their back. And there's a general fear in the air right now that the near future will be populated by killer robots. But here's the thing. Killer robots have been here a long time. Did you know the first aerial drone was deployed more than 100 years ago? Did you know the cops have already used a robot to kill a suspect? Did you know the Netherlands has already deployed robots on the ground equipped with machine guns? Kelsey Atherton knows... And he's here to tell us all about it. Atherton is a military tech writer specializing in robots, nukes, and other terrible futures. He's written just about everywhere, including Motherboard. His substack is Wars of Future Past. Do not follow him on Twitter. It will cause you psychic damage. Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. So, first off, uh, I see just over your shoulder there, is that a drone behind you? That... Is so. Um, this will be a. This is a preview of a story you can expect to read at Popular Science on Monday. Um, but that is a Phantom quadcopter that was lasered down. Um, I'm, by was lasered down. I mean, I lasered that drone uh, with a Raytheon system. Um, read about that. What it's like to see a laser weapon in real life to see. Drones on a shooting range, all those sorts of things. Uh, that'll be a popular science uh, coming up. All right. I, I just have to ask like a couple more questions about this. I know you want people to read the story, but all right. So, so you went to a shooting range, had a laser rifle and shot a drone out of the air. So I went to a artillery testing range where I had a controller plugged into a laptop, plugged into a vehicle that had a laser on it where I shot a drone out of the air. Okay. So a little bit less, uh, 40 K, uh, than, than I was imagining. And they, they let you take it home as a trophy. They insisted. And, um, it, it can't fly. It's very, very melted, um, on, uh, on one of the rotors. So that's just all bent out of shape. It turns out 15 seconds of 10 kilowatt laser energy um, will really, really mess up a flying robot. All right. Well, that's, uh, I don't know if that's heartening or not, um, but let's, let's get in, let's get into this. So I, I something I want to really stress in this conversation is that when it comes to killer robots, I think a lot of people are worried about the near term when the weird truth is like, all this stuff is kind of already here. <clears throat> Um, and there's a, there's a story that I, I know that you love to tell and I want the audience to hear it. What is the Kettering bug? The Kettering bug is arguably my favorite drone. It's, it's way up there. So the Kettering bug is a biplane. It was developed for world war one and it never saw action though. It was flown in 1918 and it's a proto drone. It's kind of the ancestor of a whole, bunch of weapons it was developed as a secret project it was um it's been was dubbed an aerial torpedo that's the closest they had to a guided a self-guided machine that blows up at the end um and as a biplane what it had is it had a gyroscope for sort of stabilization um a sensor that it had to guide and then it had a set number of 
rotations of the propeller that it would fly sort of a distance. That's basically what they could do is they could point it in direction and have it tell it to fly a distance. And then when it hit that set distance, the engine turned off and it shed its wings. So it went from being a biplane to becoming a bomb that just fell straight down. Um, It didn't see action. It had some real mishaps in the testing. I don't recall if there were any deaths in the testing, but the other one of the other really great novel stories of it, um, because they were just testing this in like fields in, I believe, Pennsylvania. It's a biplane. It looks like a biplane. Um, Aviation at the point they're testing it is 15 years old. And one of them went way off course. So they had to track down where it went. And to do that, they had to just like talk to people, to farmers and see what it was. And everyone who saw it reported seeing a pilot jump out. And the army story was, oh yeah, drunk pilot. Um, They got out, they're fine, they're safe. And no pilot, no pilot at all. It didn't have one. Um, But it was easier to let people believe what they imagined than it was to tell them, no, 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 it's perfectly fine. We made a flying bomb and we lost it. It's great because it's the origin of so many like modern American things, right? Because it's also like an early UFO story, basically, right? It is. I've I've written about it such um, at at Slate. You can you can find that there, too. All right. Well, let's get into let's get into more modern killer robots. Uh, So there's a viral video a few months back. Um, I talked to you about it at the time. Uh, This Russian submachine gun strapped to the back of a robot dog. What was going on there? So robot dogs are new and novel as sort of a way to talk about military and technological prowess in the way that like quadcopters um, or fixed wing drones were a decade ago. They're kind of assuming that place they're not yet widespread. It's not so common that everyone has already seen their neighbor crash a robot dog into a tree after opening it on Christmas. Um, And so when you put a rifle and suddenly you are taking a, it's very goofy. It's <laughs> not that there's a way to make this. It's an absurd concept in every way. This is the goofiest iteration and execution of the concept I have ever seen or have seen so far. I imagine there's potential for goofier ways to do it, but essentially it's a pretty straightforward. If you strap a gun to a machine, then suddenly you can talk about having a new weapon when what you basically have is duct tape and a remote control. Um, The other version um, that was a year earlier at the AUSA Big Army um, Association Conference, which also serves as a defense technology expo, um, the company Ghost Robotics showed off on the show floor a robot dog with a gun built into a special casing on the back that at least looked like it was intended um, to not fall off in a strong breeze or if it like tripped poorly. Um, So this is not new entirely, but the, the broader implication is why would you put a gun on a robot like this? And they, well, straightforward question. Um, 
Besides the technological showcase, you put a gun on a robot dog because you can send that robot dog in ahead of people, ideally with cameras attached so that someone controlling the dog, at this point, these machines tend to all be remote controlled still, or at least transmitting data remotely. You do that so that you can clear out a room, you can explore an underground space, you can send the robot in first to do the shooting. But this is not the way. Do you think that this is, do you think that dogs are going to be the final form of this thing though? I don't, there's a reason that legged robots haven't taken off on the, it's sort of lost um, in all the cute Sam Adams videos that Boston dynamics puts out. But for a while they were a pure defense contractor making a, heavy gas-powered legged vehicle for the Marine Corps um, called the Legged Support System, or LS3, um, that was famously rejected by the Marines because it was super loud to use. Legs are useful. We've had pack animals on legs have a long, long military history because they go where people go. They crawl up mountains. They go over hills. You can bypass certain terrain. That's Good. Pack animals is probably the best use for that. Um, and that's what it was originally designed as. But the reason, one of the main reasons to not do legs is if you have a broken leg on an animal, then you can leave the animal in the field. In armies past, you would have the animal would convert from carrying supplies to becoming rations. Um, and when you have a broken leg on a robot, you have to blow up the robot or repair the robot or abandon it and risk it being recovered by enemies and built to their purposes when they have the time and the resources to do it. And that's not a position anyone really wants to be in. Um, you don't want to have to go to the steps of building in self-destruct. That's more science fiction than it would be practical at this point. Um, soldiers don't want to have to take into battle equipment. They're going to have to destroy um, as we've seen um, in footage coming from Ukraine, is that when soldiers flee in advance, there's a proper way to dispose of advanced equipment if you can't pull it out. But if you are running for your life, the proper disposal of state secret military technology is not your first priority. Um, and so there's a whole lot of real limitations to that. And the easiest way to not do it is to not bring something that you feel is a liability. So treads then. We're talking about probably treads. We're talking about treads. We're talking a lot about treads. They're good. They're reliable. You can pull them out of the muck. You can strip the important parts and leave it stuck there. You don't have to worry about if a tread goes out, you can repair one of the wheels on the tread. You can clip in plates of the tread to do. Lots of machines are designed so that they're easy to access. You flip up a hinge, you pull it out. As field repairable tech goes, you do treads, you do wheels. Treads gives you more terrain and slower speeds. But if you're talking about infantry support, then that's perfectly fine. Let's talk. Let's let's stay on the robot dogs for just a few more minutes. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, all right. So recently, Boston Dynamics, five other, and I believe five other robot manufacturers, they signed this pledge. They said, hey, we're not going to weaponize any of our robots. Mm-hmm. Um, does that matter at all? I don't want to discount the effort or the initiative into getting pledges. It's important, I think, 
broadly, we've also seen this um, with Google engineers and Project Maven. We've seen this with Microsoft engineers and the HoloLens being built as the IVAS um, heads-up display for soldiers technology. There's some real merit to workers saying, we did not get into this industry to build weapons. Please do not sell our commercial product as a weapon. Um, we've, but when it comes to the weaponization of robot dogs, there are there are ways you can hard code to not do things. You can certainly agree to not sell to militaries, though Boston Dynamics has certainly worked with police um, in in the past, and I imagine will continue to do so. Um, so that's a different area um, we could, of how robots get used for. Um, as as an accessory to violence. Um, But one of the other big things is that the Ghost Robotics QUGV, their robot dog, is the one that militaries are actually buying and developing. Um, It's easy to think of them all as big dogs or spot. Boston Dynamics has incredible brand recognition. So, But the one that is actually already a military contractor is not one of the ones that signed the letter. Um, And the one other point, um, as the as the DJI behind me suggests, you can make a fully commercial product um, intending only for like commercial or educational or scientific uses, and it can still end up in the hands of people who are using them for war. DJI, the company, has said it was um, early in the Ukraine invasion of Ukraine, said it was going to ban sales and then did to Russia and Ukraine to prevent its what it sees as the toys it makes being used as weapons. And yet um, markets are pretty porous. It's easy to get them abroad and ship them in. Uh, soldiers on both sides have have demanded and now deploy and see them as pretty essential to how they fight. I don't think it's a pledge to not sell that will stop it from getting there if they end up on the commercial market in a scale where an intermediary can promise to not use it that way and then turn around and sell it the other way. All right. During that, you also said that war is not one of the only ways that robots become an accessory to violence. Um, Mm -hmm. I think Boston dynamics is a really good example of this. Um, Can you talk about the domestic uses of spot, the, 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 the robot that have where it has become an accessory to violence. So spot which now comes in a nice, nice safety yellow. Um, it's a really interesting case. It's a technology that has, um, I, I've seen them in, in action. I apparently slept through the night. They walked um, down the uh, halls of the hotel I was staying in for a DARPA event. Um, but it's certainly a real technology that does real things. Um, and it's been, right? It's at a DARPA event. They're already working on this as a, that was, ostensibly rescue work, but the one that is more standout is it's been used with police forces in multiple states. It's accompanied them. Um, whenever it does, you see videos of like, here's how to pull out Spot's battery, kind of circulate the or diagrams of that will circulate Twitter. Um, but one of the ones, the, the use case, which isn't the scariest one, but I think one of the most telling ones is in Honolulu. Police used a Spot robot to screen to do initial screens of um, unhoused people for COVID before having any human get into it, which is, it's not killing, it's not shooting, it's not even like scouting for a raid, but it's such 
a remove rather than just like wearing a mask and talking to a person. It was like, no, 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 you have to talk to the robot first. The robot will take your temperature and then you get to talk to people. It was also using, it was also doing, uh, I believe, meal delivery and um, they had purchased it using COVID relief funds, if I recall correctly. I Accounting tricks are truly, truly me. <laughs> One of the great innovations of all time. Local local governments and, uh, as you know, the Pentagon runs on accounting tricks. Uh, you know, we could do a whole co- we could do a whole podcast about uh, like the o- overseas contingency budget, but like no one would pay attention to us. Um, all right, we're going to pause there briefly for a break, cyber listeners. If you are watching on Twitch or YouTube, there is no break. There's no ads. We'll be back here in just a minute. If you're listening to the podcast, please have a word from our sponsor. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking around with us. Welcome back. I'm Matthew Galt. We're on with Kelsey Atherton. We are talking about killer robots and uh, the future of the robot dogs we all love to be afraid of. Um, All right. One more question before we get off the robot dogs. Um, why do you think they capture our imagination? So why do you think that we've spent the past 15 minutes talking about them? There's real killer robots out there, right? That, that have, that have killed people and are killing people probably right now, but the dogs fascinate us. Why? So what is striking? And this shows up in, there's the Black Mirror episode, which everyone points to, but the Black Mirror uh, didn't invent robot dogs. The robot dogs have preceded their use in fiction, um, and certainly in fiction in that way, for a long time. And I think it really comes down to the biomimicry. It's these machines resemble human, resemble animals that are not just are familiar to us, right? Like. Robot snakes are unsettling, but we sort of expect that because a lot of people find snakes inherently unsettling. Um, dogs are unsettling because because dogs have such a deep role as companions and helpers. And the notion that they could be replaced by machines and then turned into weapons both is haunting. Um, it's Visceral in a way that a turret on treads isn't. A turret on treads just screams tank, and I can put that in my mind category of tank. But if I see a robot walking on four legs towards me, even if it's got a weird scorpion hand on its back, uh, is sometimes imitating a neck and sometimes a mouth and sometimes a tail, whatever, even if I see that, it's intuitive enough. It, It hits the primal part of my brain in such a way that's like, Oh, right. 
this is a dog. There's, uh, let me pull up this one quote real quick. Um, it, this quote comes from uh, New Breed. It's a book by Kate Darling about how people will feel about robots as they use them. Darling writes, um, it's important to understand we will treat robots like living things. Our tendency runs deep, and as much as we could decry and argue against it, it's not going away. Um, That means we're deploying robots in tool contexts without understanding that people may treat them differently than other devices, without considering when that might happen, why, and how to deal with it when it does. Um, end quote. Do you think that's going to happen with these tank-looking ones? So, one of the examples of how far people will go to sort of anthropomorphize one is there was a robot that was designed as a minesweeper. It was like a stick bug was the design. Lots of legs. Um, it would walk into a minefield, press its legs down. Minefields are triggered by the weight of a human foot, often or the weight of a tank. And this one had lots of legs. It could keep crawling through a field and press down um, on the mines. And then when it was out of legs, if it was salvageable, you could go back and put new legs on and send it back out. Um, A general, this has been reported by the Washington Post. It comes up a bunch of places. Observing the test is like, no, we absolutely cannot deploy this. I do think legs feel different, but we have stories. Um, and we've had stories. There have been robots that have deployed with militaries in war for a long time. I'm um, especially um, in when the Iraq War uh, became full counterinsurgency, especially around the time of the surge. There was a lot of effort to get bomb squad robots to to soldiers, to Marines, to people fighting on the ground to make sure that they could like sweep out the roadside bombs that people were planting in their invaded country against the U.S. Um, and one thing that would happen is that the, the robot would be deployed. They would, they would steer it over. They'd use their little video game style controller to guide it to a bomb and it would blow up. And that's better than the person dying. It's objectively better than a person dying if the robot is the one that takes the explosive blast. But the units would then take their robot and when they would send it back, this is uh, detailed by Peter Singer and Wired for War, um, they would send the robot back for repairs and they would say, we want this robot back. Not we want a new robot. It wasn't like they lost a wrench. They wasn't like they lost um, a more discardable, less anthropomorphized tool. I think that the moving does it. I think the closer it is to an animal, um, it's much easier to form that bond, but people form that bond with a machine that is essentially a pair of treads, a camera and a robot claw. Um, people will pack bond with all sorts of things. And some of the things they will pack bond with are the tools designed to be blown up if a bomb goes off while you're dismantling it. Do you then think um, the people making weaponized robots, these mind-sweeping robots, is that perhaps a feature of these that they will then lean into? I do wonder if we will see sympathetic machines designed so that when they are injured 
when they are damaged, here I am doing it, when they are damaged, that the people coming to pick them, they may blow up as a trap. We've already seen um, when ISIS had for a while drone workshops when it uh, controlled territory that it was using, and it would booby trap its drones. It would be enough to like, oh, they have to investigate what was shot down, and they would booby trap a drone. That wasn't, I think, people weren't going to a down drone for sympathetic reasons. Um but it's a possible feature that could be incorporated in design. I'm sure there are uh, depths of human psychological exploitation that we have not yet begun to tap when we are talking about making moving machines for war. Uh, I was thinking about how horrible it would be um, to have like medic drones uh, or medic robots that are in the field that have personalities to a certain extent limited, like, uh, you know, basically like strap a chat bot onto something like this. Uh, and then it gets, gets shot. Uh, and then it cries out in pain. It needs to be, you know, recovered. Uh, it just would make war. I mean, it's already terrible, but, uh, the f- there's a terraform story by David ax, I think about a, yes. um, about a medic robot um, that is uh, deeply compelling. I, I highly recommend reading it. That, that gets into the space. It's something. Um, there's lots of fiction about about robots built for harm in war, and this is one of the ones that's kind of haunting about a robot built for healing in war. Yeah, I uh, I remember that. I wish he would write more fiction, but he won't. <laughs> um, all right, let's let's get into some of what is actually out there right now. What is dangerous? What what is what has been deployed? And when we look at the landscape, obviously we've had drones in the sky uh, have become kind of this iconic part of the global war on terror, right? Um, but there is also now stuff on the ground. What is on the ground now? So the most used on the ground robots have been in that bomb squad EOD, that's explosive ordnance disposal, um, mine clearing capacity. For all the the stories of sympathetic soldiers um, asking for their bomb robot back, people are still pretty happy to send a bomb robot in over instead of sending people into clear mines first. Um, Russia has the Uran 6 D miner, I believe, um, that they uh, used in Syria that they've used to uh, clear out explosives um, in occupied Mariupol. Um, and there's others, um, the Talon. And the Remotech ones are lines that have been used by the U.S. and them end up uh, used in mine clearing operations abroad. That's a big category of ground one. That's kind of an older category of ground one. The other ones we are seeing um, are sort of robotic platforms for carrying cargo. And sometimes they will carry a weapon station, um, which is a kind of tower that you strap a gun or a rocket launcher, sometimes both. Um and that allows it to give information about what it's looking at, um, about what it's perceiving around it, to a human operator who is um, who is controlling it. Um, so far, I believe it's been, it's, it's we haven't seen anything that's not under direct control. Um, sometimes they'll do waypoint navigation. I think that's as far as we've gotten on ground robots, but the controls are still in the hands of a person, though they may be algorithmically assisted to scan the horizon or identify objects. What, what does that mean? Algorithmically assisted? <laughs> I, yes, yes. Good, good catch on the euphemism. So there's a lot of, 
one of the things machines have as a, a driving utility is processing power. They can imagery. Um, they can process imagery, and with through a lot of analysis, you can possibly distinguish between like this is a person, this is a vehicle, this is the vehicle we are seeing, and we have fixed it in space with our sensor, and we're, it's moving against the background, but the uh, camera pod is still following it. That is something you can do, um, and so. It's just ingesting whatever sensor input there is. And I should say the sensor inputs we typically see um, are visual light. Um, Electro-optical will be the term you'll see in a sensor pod brochure. Um, Infrared, um, there's thermal views. There's uh, sometimes they'll lock on other signatures. Sometimes they'll be paired with radar. Um, And once you have those sensors in, and it can be to like the, the turning and tracking function and like distance calculating function, of a weapon. Um, and that can all happen in the computer that could be built into or like attached to the weapon station. And that will influence and shape the kind of information that is presented to the soldier holding the tablet. They will not just see a camera view, but they will see a camera view with information layered onto it. Um, and that's the algorithmic assistance, which could include automatically tracking an object that the soldier marks it could include tracking and marking on its own an object. Um, so far, I have yet to see anything say that it will designate a target and fire on its own, though um, there was a weapon maker who said that the reason that hasn't been coded in is uh, laws and norms, not uh, the technical challenge. I was just about to ask, is there an official stated DOD policy on robots killing on their own? I should double check on this, but there was a document misconstrued as such for a very long time. In 2012, the U.S. put out a document that stated the U.S. did not have autonomous um, autonomous lethal weaponry. It pointed to, at the time in the inventory, this was this is 2012, there was a missile that could choose who it jammed on its own. It was, a, it was electronic warfare. It would mess up the sensors, um, which non-kinetic, which is to say not bullets or explosions. Um, the document has been interpreted to say the U.S. has a rule that they don't do it. Um, what it was actually meant is that the U.S. did not have a weapon that matched the description at the time. Um, there have been work on this. What the U.S. has is AI guidelines. These were put forth by the, um, I believe, the Department of Defense um, Industrial Board. There's an organization that put forth, uh, that was commissioned by DOD to put forth guiding AI principles. Um, it sounds like uh, the DOD has not given an official line about whether or not there's ever going to be autonomous killer robots, they're they're leaving the door open a little bit, is what it sounds like. There is, and I do want to say, um, so Governor Bolt. So they, I found, I found the AI principles. Um, they came out in in February 2020. That calm, calm time for everybody. Um, and there's a principle saying. 
that the department will design and engineer AI capabilities to fulfill their intended functions while possessing the ability to detect and avoid unintended consequences and the ability to engage or deactivate deployed systems that demonstrate unintended behavior. There's so you're going to have a kill switch? On... Is that what that means? I... It suggests that they should be building kill switches, yes. There's a longer discussion on this. I, I, um, I, I'm pretty sure I wrote about it at the time. Um, but one of the things I will say, and I, this came up, um, there was a DARPA event a couple last month, maybe in August, where people were asking if there was a hindrance by mandating responsible control of AI, um, which the the obvious question is there's not really an advantage to irresponsible use of AI. Um, But in in talking with DARPA, one of the things that comes up is that because commanders are trained to follow the laws of war, that's that's a big thing, that's not just the commanders, but the whole of the military, adheres to, it is advantageous for everyone involved in that process, by and large, to have laws of war hard-coded to the extent they can be. Um, Commanders would like to not have machines that disobey orders. Um, Soldiers would like to make sure that they can trust machines, and if they can't trust that a machine won't execute hostages um, or misidentify a target or misidentify one of a friendly as an enemy, that's not going to be a machine they can comfortably deploy. That said, it's, this is at the point of policy decisions and not technology limitations. So the only thing holding back autonomous killer robots at the moment is us. And it sounds like maybe not for a whole lot longer. Yeah, there was a story in Defense One. I believe it was talking to a maker at uh, Rheinmetall, the uh, German arms company, where who said that that was it was technological limitations were not the problem. Um, that the customers have not asked for this. Which look, it's good that the customers have not asked for it. Um, it's it's a wild thing when uh, that is the customers are the militaries of countries that buy from Rheinmetall. Um, and we have to kind of just assume that they're all on board with this. There's UN debates. There's conventions of law of war that are working to code this and code this into treaty. Those have meaningful effects. I think a lot of laser use and laser warning and management is downstream from the treaty on uh, partially blinding weapons, which governed lasers long before um Laser weapons were really a thing, but laser designators certainly were. That can have an effect, but it is human and policy constraints. All right, let's move on to some of the stuff that you've just written about. Um, obviously, Ukraine is in the headlines. It's it, it's what everyone's talking about that's kind of on our beats. Um, it is also this interesting place where we are seeing the deployment of technologies that uh, – a lot of people have bought, and there's been a lot of training exercises, but not a whole lot of deployment. And you're starting to mm-hmm. see these things used for the first time in a real war. Uh, the two, I really, I mean, there's obviously the Bayraktar, which is the uh, uh, the Turkish drone. Um, the one that you've just written about is the, and I'm probably going to say this wrong, the Shahid-136, which is Iranian, which the Russians are using. Yes, so... Um, and this is a drone, I, I, technically. 
Yes. So this one, the piece I wrote, um, it, it's at Popular Science. Uh, the headline is, it's time to stop using kamikaze to describe the exploding drones in Ukraine, um, which gives you some sense of what it does. Um, the Shahid is a, it functions as, a, it's used as a missile. It's built from drone parts. It's a flying wing um, propeller uh, explosive body um, that is basically a very low cost alternative to cruise missiles or artillery or rocket bombardment. You can fire, um, you can fire them. You can purchase them. The price I saw um, I've seen is $20,000 of for, for parts and with sale, um, which is drastically less than like, say the, million dollars that a cruise missile can cost um but it's broadly in the category of drone shaped missiles um self-detonating drones is what the um is recommended in the guidance issued by the amazing asian american journalist association who issued the guidance with military veterans and journalism um and it's being used um it has battlefield applicability if you any missile does, but it's also being used as just a way to fire into civilian areas at long distance. You can make a machine fly a lot longer if you don't have to worry about recovering it. And you can certainly, um, if you can make it on on the parts of the the low cost drone parts, then you have a weapon with meaningful range. Right. So the, these are the the weapons that are essentially being kind of replacing cruise missiles and being launched into Ukraine. They're much cheaper. Right. And they're not technically a kamikaze because uh, the pilot isn't dying because the pilot is on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the most and that's the big, big distinction. Um, The other term that comes up for these is suicide drones. And. Again, we're imbuing a lot of life into machines when we do this. It's sort of the recurring theme here, but it's if. Machines don't die, not in the sense that matters. Um, and they break, they come down there, they become parts. We have. Um, it cheapens the lives these they take too, in a certain to a right, certain extent. And that's one of the things. It the the kamikaze also originates as a very very specific tactic um, used in um, Imperial Japan in the waning days of World War II as a way to convert pilots into guidance systems and planes into bombs in an attempt um, to def- to de- delay or defeat the U.S. Navy. Um, but that war also saw drones. That war had drones. Mostly they were aerial targets. But there were also some planes filled up with explosives and remotely controlled. Um, so drones are contemporaneous with the tactic. We don't have to um, go back to it. The other example, which we could be saying um, is like the V one rockets are, are buzz bombs, which were long distance guided. They're proto- they're also cruise missile predecessors. Um, those are also a pretty close parallel um, and we don't have to resort to saying, oh, well, when this machine dies, it made a sacrifice to achieve its objectives. No, it's a tool that was used in the 
thing it was used for is murder. Um, that's, that's what bombs are. Um, and it's basically that, um, and they're cheap. This is again riding on the on the existence of a commercial drone parts market, an international um, cheap avionics, cheaper guidance systems, cheap remote control, um, airframes. You can build uh, fairly low cost. All right, I have one more question for you. It's a bit, this is the most important question I'm going to ask you on this podcast. <laughs> Elon Musk has taken control or is about to take control of Twitter. The deal is closed. It's happening. He's brought in the kitchen sink. You are on Twitter all the time. Uh, you send the most horrifying things uh, I've ever seen, uh, not because they are gross, uh, but because uh, they're just, I don't know how your brain works. It's very strange uh, and disturbing to me. Are you going to leave? Are you leaving Twitter? A lot of people said they're leaving. I, know myself better than to assume that I will be jumping ship. Um, it is, uh, the site is deeply flawed. I imagine I've, I'm under no illusions that it will do anything but get worse. Um, though it's hard to point back at the time in Twitter and say, ah, well, here's the time it actually got better for a stretch though. I imagine that had happened at some point, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a creature of the machine. I will, uh, I'll, learn to trade in short videos if I must, but until the, as long as the site exists, um, I'll be there making the, the worst puns. Well, uh, the only comfort then is that all things move towards their end. Mr. Atherton. Thank you so much for coming on to cyber and walking us through the, the age of killer drones that we all now live in. Um, if people do want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Atherton.KD. I will be there till the heat death of the universe. And the Substack is Wars of Future Past. Uh, he's got a really great essay in there about Star Wars uh, and its relationship to World War II. And it, it, I think it's very good uh, that people sh- and people should read it. Um, if you like cyber and you want to catch us live, we are broadcasting live at youtube.com forward slash motherboard and twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV. Uh, Thank you all so much for tuning in. Please keep listening, and we will be back again next week. Thank you, everybody. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.